invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. We are nearing the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. His public ministry began in this region of Galilee, and we will soon uh, turn to see and and learn about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, which begins at the end of this chapter, chapter 9, verse 51, as he journeys on to Jerusalem to do what he came to this earth to do, to, to suffer, to die, and then rise from the dead on the third day. So Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of God. Now it happened that as he, that is Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and Others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him, Will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? But I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, Luke has been developing these two themes. I brought your attention to these two themes the last couple of Sundays. The first of these themes is this revelation of Jesus' power and authority. We have witnessed this in the last couple chapters of Luke's Gospel. We have seen that Jesus has power and authority over many different domains of life. Disease, death, Nature, Satan and his demons. But the second theme that Luke has also been developing is this theme of responses to Jesus. We have witnessed a number of responses to this revelation of his power and authority. Some of these responses have been positive. Some of these responses have been negative. Some have been somewhere in between. But we have yet to hear this confession, this explicit confession, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God. 
In fact, I believe that Luke wants us to feel something of of this tension. When will they get it? When will someone finally recognize the identity of Jesus as the Christ? And here in our passage, we, we get some resolution to that tension. As Peter confesses that this Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, of God. So I'd like us to focus our hearts and minds this evening upon the importance of confessing Jesus to be the Christ of the cross and resurrection. The importance of confessing Jesus to be the Christ of both the cross and the resurrection. To do so, we will first consider Peter's confession, how Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ. We then will see Jesus explain that he is the Christ of the cross and the resurrection. And lastly, we'll consider the implications of confessing the Christ of the cross and the resurrection. So first, notice that Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ. This passage begins with this dialogue after Jesus has finished praying. And this dialogue is between Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus asks his disciples, Who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples respond by saying, Well, there are those who say that that you're John the Baptist. There are others who who say you're Elijah or some other great prophet of old who's been resurrected. If you remember from last week, this is the same report that came to Herod's ears as well. And Jesus, not approving of of this report, he says, "But, but who do you say that I am? This adversative but, but who do you say that I am? seems to indicate that he's hoping, expecting that his disciples may have a better response than that of the crowds. And that's where we see Peter uh, speaking up for the disciples, saying, well, you're the Christ, the Christ of God. Finally, finally, someone acknowledges this identity of Jesus. Now, of course, we don't want to impute too much into uh, this confession and say that that Peter knew all that was entailed in this identity of Jesus. But he at least was on the right track. And this word Christ, this this title Christ, means the anointed one. If you recall in in Jesus' baptism, Jesus himself was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was declared to be by God the Father, the Son of God, the second Adam, the one who is here to do what the first Adam failed to do. To do what Israel could not do for themselves, that is earn heaven and the eternal Sabbath rest. Jesus was the anointed one of God, that is he was the fulfillment of all of the prophecies, promises of the Old Testament. In fact, our catechism has a question about what we mean when we confess the title Christ. It says that Jesus himself was the true prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, he 
declare to us the, the will of God for our salvation as a true priest. He was the final sacrifice which completely brought about the forgiveness of sins. And he was our king. Our king who, who reigns and rules over all things and governs his people through his word and spirit. This is the anointed one. The anointed one of God. And the crowds, the crowds, they witnessed Jesus' power and authority. They saw that he, had, he could do miraculous things. He could raise the dead. He could heal people who were sick, who had diseases, even casting out unclean spirits. But they were missing this messianic nature. They were missing really the main mission of why Jesus came to this earth. To bring about this everlasting salvation that God's people have been looking forward to. To crush the head of the serpent. And Peter, Peter at least saw something of the true mission of Jesus. He's the anointed one of God. So let me ask you, who do you say that this Jesus is? I think it's very easy for us today to make Jesus or turn Jesus into something that he is not in a way that's akin to how these crowds miss the identity of Jesus. Just as the crowds wanted to see Jesus merely as, as John or Elijah or, or another prophet. Right? They saw him as a great prophet, but not the prophet. So today we we can turn Jesus into something that he is not. For instance, it's very easy to turn Jesus into our cultural warrior, as if his main mission was to transform our culture, to bring about this earthly, maybe political change. Whether you're on the right or the left, there's this temptation to turn Jesus into our cultural warrior. There's a temptation to turn Jesus into our therapeutic psychologist, as if to say Jesus' main mission was to end loneliness, depression, anxiety, and make us emotionally happy. That's the essence of his mission. Or we can even turn Jesus as another virtuous leader who has darkened the halls of history. There are many, many figures in history who brought about great change in this world that are worthy of emulation, and Jesus is just another one of those characters. A virtuous leader worthy of emulation. So whether we're speaking about a member of the crowd in Jesus' day who turned Jesus into John or Elijah or another great prophet, or, or someone today who wants to see Jesus primarily as a cultural warrior or a, a therapeutic psychologist or a virtuous leader, we're missing, we're missing the true identity and mission of Jesus. We're missing this title, that he is the anointed one of God. He is the Christ. So what exactly, what exactly does uh, Jesus mean uh, more specifically about this title, this term, as the anointed one, as the Christ? I, I've hinted at this, but let us uh, turn to consider what Jesus himself says about this title. Essentially, Jesus is saying to Peter and the disciples, okay, 
You, you've confessed me to be the Christ, the anointed one. Let me tell you what, what that actually means. It means that I am the Christ of the cross and the resurrection. That, that's what we see in verses 21 and 22. Jesus goes on and, and explains for his disciples that as the Christ, he has come to this earth, not to bring about great earthly political change and set up an earthly kingdom and dominion and, and make his apostles and disciples his right-hand men in glory. Rather, he came to suffer, to die, to rise from the dead on the third day. And this would have been jarring for many of the disciples. They're saying, what, Jesus? You're going to suffer and die? What about you coming and bringing in this great kingdom, this renewal of the, the theocracy that, that our forefathers of old experienced under David and Solomon? You're going to suffer and die? But this was his mission. He was the Christ. He came to live for us, to earn our, our great eternal Sabbath rest that no human being could earn. He came to die, to suffer and die, to satisfy the sins which you have committed and will continue to commit. He abated the wrath of God so that you can be freely accepted in God's eternal throne room. He rose from the dead, proving to this whole world that he is the Christ, that he was perfect, that he did die the death that brought about the forgiveness of sins. And he is reigning right now at God's right hand, reserving for you a place in that new creation. That's his mission. He came to do something far greater than some temporary earthly change, than merely healing someone's body for 10, 20, or 30 more years. He, he came to bring everlasting salvation and change to the people of God. So we need to make sure we don't turn Jesus into something that he's not. We need to make sure that we keep our eyes focused upon this true identity of our Lord. He is indeed the Christ. Beloved, this is what our world needs to hear. This is what our community needs to hear. This Christ, this Jesus. And Jesus' suffering, his, his death, his resurrection, first and foremost, are things that are done by him as our unique representative. Things that we could never imitate or emulate. You and I cannot die for someone else and bring about their forgiveness. You and I cannot live a perfect life on behalf of someone else. You and I cannot rise from the dead on our own. You and I cannot ascend to God's whole, on, uh, on God's holy hill. First and foremost, this is the gospel. Gospel is not something that we live, it's something that Jesus lived. But secondarily, after we see this as these things, as, as, as things that Jesus himself did for us as a unique second Adam, then we can see this as a, a pattern that's meant to structure our lives. And Jesus now goes on to explain to Peter to his disciples, and even those from the crowds listening in. He says, okay, you confess me to be the Christ of God. 
I'm telling you, I'm the Christ of the cross and the resurrection. And there are implications that come with this confession. So what are these implications of confessing the Christ of both the cross and the resurrection? One of the implications is that just as Christ had to go through the path of, of humiliation, suffering and death, before he could experience the way of exaltation and resurrection, so too his disciples. Jesus says that the disciple is not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, why would you expect anything different? So Jesus here says that one of the implications that we're called to live under the cross, we're called to live in the way of the cross. In fact, Jesus says this explicitly as he says uh, to those around him that they are to take up their cross daily and follow him. Now in the Roman world, crucifixions were quite common. And they had profound imagery and intentional imagery that, were associ- that was associated with them. So ordinarily a criminal who had been uh, accused and convicted he would have to carry this cross, this tool of his execution upon his back to the place of his execution. And this criminal who had either done something or lived a life in rebellion to the state now was being forced in a very public manner to submit to the state as he carried this tool of execution, the state's tool of execution, to his place of execution. This is a profound image of his submission to the state at the end of his life. When we apply this to the Christian life, we see that we all by nature are rebellious to God. That's the characteristic of our fallen sinful nature. And the cross essentially stands for the life that Christ calls us to live. Denying ourselves suffering and hardship that comes our way because we're followers of Christ or because we just live in a fallen world. And we're called to carry our cross. That is, we're called to submit to this life that the Lord has called us to. This is a picture of submission. Submission to a higher authority to which we belong. This should orientate or reorientate our expectations. So easy for us to begin to think that we deserve exaltation in this life. We don't need to go the way of the cross. We deserve exaltation right away. Glory right away. But Jesus says that shouldn't be your expectation. Jesus had to walk the way of the cross before he experienced exaltation. And so to his followers. In fact, the disciples, a few passages from now, they, they will be confused about this very thing. Jesus here overhears his argument with the disciples as they're bickering amongst themselves, saying, who among them is the greatest? They didn't quite get this yet, that Jesus was calling them to the way of the cross. Well, Jesus also calls us uh, to a life of self-denial. It's another implication of, of this confession 
a life of, of denying ourselves. Now, the great lie that, that we believe as fallen human beings is that a life of self-centeredness is going to equal happiness, and the life of, of denying ourselves, like what Jesus is saying, is actually going to lead to misery. Now, theoretically, you may object to that, but existentially, when you're living your life, when you're making decisions, there's a lie that we oftentimes believe. It's hard for us not to be self-centered because we think that our happiness lies on the other side of that. But Jesus is saying the opposite. He's saying the opposite. Denying oneself is actually the path of true life and happiness and fulfillment. If you look at verses 24 and 25, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In one sense, we can read verse 24 and even verse 25 as a description of faith, for justification in the sense that at the heart of faith is a, a denial of ourself. A looking away from ourselves, not trying to find life in ourselves, but looking to another. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only when we do that that we will gain everlasting life. But if we seek to find life in ourselves, that is, we seek to merit salvation on our own, judgment lies on the other side. But I also believe that there's an application to the life of, of sanctification. So not just everlasting life, but the blessed life in this age. And the blessed life of this age is found in a life of self-denial. Life of humility, which Christ himself exemplified. Where we put the good of the other above ourselves. The happiness of, our other, of others above ourselves. And ironically, when we do that, our happiness gets included as well. But if we live a life of self-centeredness and seek our good, our happiness above all, no one's happy, chiefly ourselves. Let me ask, well, why is this the case? It seems at times counterintuitive to us. Why would we find happiness when we seek the good of the other? Consider for a moment, as, as one author has pointed out, the nature of God himself. The members of the Trinity have found glory and blessedness in themselves, but this isn't a self-centered relationship. They have all glory and blessedness in themselves as they delight in one another. Think of the economy of redemption. The Spirit of God, whenever the Spirit of God shows up in Scripture, almost always it's to shine the spotlight upon Christ. J.I. Packer used this illustration of spotlights at a stadium. When they're working properly, you never talk about the spotlights. You only talk about what the spotlight is seeking to illuminate. And so, too, with the Spirit. The Spirit is seeking to put the spotlight upon Christ. There's that other orientation. You think about the Son throughout his earthly ministry. His delight was to the will of his Father in heaven. Think of the Father as he delights to exalt the Son after his earthly ministry. There's that other orientation in the members of the of the Godhead. Well, we are created in the image of that God, and thus living this life of self-denial is really the most natural thing we can do. We're image bearers of God. We're called to deny ourselves. 
Jesus also then concludes by saying that we are not to be ashamed of him or his words. If you look with me at verse 26, he says, Forever, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, how should we read this? On first reading, it, it almost seems as if Jesus better not come back when we fail to speak up, speak up about him when we should. He better not come back when we are timid about him and his word. Otherwise, things might not go well for us. Is that how we should read this? I've noted this before, but God's law, which this is one aspect of God's law, is a command, it's an imperative in Scripture. It comes to the believer differently than it comes to the unbeliever. For the uh, unbeliever, it comes in the form of strict justice. It promises everlasting life upon their obedience. But if they fail at any one point of that law, it threatens death eternally. There's no mediator. But when the law comes to the believer, it comes to those who've already been granted everlasting life through the merits of Christ. And it comes as a way for us to express our gratitude to God. So if you think about the law as a vicious dog, for the believer, that vicious dog has had his voice box removed and his muzzle. The threats have been stripped from the law of God for the believer. And so for the unbeliever who reads this, it's quite straightforward. If you think Jesus is a laughingstock in this age, well, that's how he's going to treat you on the last day. Judgment is in store for you. But for the believer, we hear this command stripped of its threat. So we hear this, this call to not be ashamed of Christ and his words, but we don't need to fear the threat because we know Jesus has taken that punishment on our behalf. But nevertheless, we need to hear this command, this imperative, because we're called to still obey uh, the law of God. And so we're called to not be ashamed of Christ and the cross. I think Jesus includes this command at this point in our narrative because there's much temptation to be ashamed when we're following the Christ of the cross. This is not appealing to the flesh. It's not appealing to this world. In fact, it's quite foolish to this world. It doesn't come with outward power, prestige, and, and glory. So there's much, there's much temptation to be ashamed of this Jesus, to be ashamed of his words. But nevertheless, we're called to be bold. We're called to be assertive about, about giving a defense of, of this master, this savior in which we are following. And this is especially important for us as a, a church plan. I mentioned this last week. We're a mission work. I'm a missionary, technically speaking. And we're called. We're called to be assertive about giving a defense of the hope that lies within us. Yes, we're following the Christ of the cross, but we're looking forward to reigning with the Christ of the resurrection and exaltation. The only certain hope that exists. And then lastly, in verse 27, Jesus says that there are those standing there with him who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And this is alluding to the passage, the next passage, which we will consider next week, this transfiguration where some of his disciples 
we'll see a foretaste of the coming glory of the Son of Man. Well, brothers and sisters, beloved in the Lord, this passage before us is calling us to both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? Right confession and right living. We are called to confess truly the Christ of the cross and the resurrection. But we're also called to live according to this pattern which was displayed for us in Jesus' life. So let us pray.